Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. Briefly, St. Faustina, in case you're not particularly familiar with her life, she was born in Poland in 1905. Her birth name was Helen, and she died at the age of 33 in 1938. And she lived a relatively obscure life. Obviously, much of the Catholic world knows about her now, as, with the case, uh, as is the case with many saints. But she lived a relatively obscure life for 33 years. And I want to just draw your attention today to three phases of her life. The first was her calling to religious life. The second is to point out what she considered to be her, her personal mission from God received uh, for her to exercise within religious life as a religious sister. And then finally, just a very, very brief little uh, story from uh, the time near her, near her death and the weeks leading up to her death. So, first of all, just a little bit about her calling to religious life. She recounts this in a very succinct format in her diary, uh, which she was commanded to write under obedience uh, during the last three or four years of her life. So roughly the age is 29 to 33 years old is when she was writing her diary, uh, recording all of these extraordinary uh, locutions or messages from Jesus, uh, sometimes from Mary, but mostly from our Lord. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have read her diary. Uh, if you haven't, I would recommend it. Uh, it's, we always have it in the, in the back on the bookshelf uh, for sale. And uh, she recounts in the very beginning of her diary, just super succinctly, her calling to religious life. And this is how she puts it. From the age of seven, I experienced the definite call of God, the grace of a vocation to the religious life. But I was not always obedient to the call of grace. And then she fast-forwards to when she's 18, and she sort of expands on this a little bit. She says, In the 18th year of my life, I made an earnest appeal to my parents for permission to enter the convent. My parents flatly refused. After this refusal, I turned myself over to the vain things of life, paying no attention to the call of grace, although my soul found no satisfaction in any of these things. The incessant call of grace caused me much anguish. I tried, however, to stifle it with amusements. Interiorly, I shunned God, turning with all my heart to creatures. However, God's grace won out in my soul. So she's around 18, 19, 20 years old. She's recalling how she deliberately turned away from the Lord's plan to her life. She knew what he was asking of her, uh, but she refused to say yes. And she mentioned that God's grace eventually won out around the age of 20. And I'll just recount the moment when that happened. Um, she was actually at a dance. And so she, she recounts this moment when the Lord sort of burst into her life in a very <laughs> obvious way. And uh, she did, in this moment, eventually give him her, her full yes, despite her, her parents' opposition. 
So she says, once I was at a dance with one of my sisters. While everybody was having a good time, my soul was experiencing deep torments. As I began to dance, I suddenly saw Jesus at my side. Jesus racked with pain, stripped of his clothing, all covered with wounds. And he spoke these words to me. How long shall I put up with you? And how long will you keep putting me off? At that moment, the charming music stopped and the company I was with vanished from my sight. There remained Jesus and I. I took a seat by my dear sister, pretending to have a headache in order to cover up what took place in my soul. After a while, I slipped out unnoticed, leaving my sister and all my companions behind and made my way to the Cathedral of St. Stanislaus Koska. It was almost twilight. There were only a few people in the cathedral. Paying no attention to what was happening around me, I fell prostrate before the Blessed Sacrament and begged the Lord to be good enough to help me understand what I should do next. I love that image. Uh, she comes into this cathedral. There's a handful of people around. She doesn't even care. She just throws herself on the floor <laughs> and begs God to, to help her know, know the next steps for her life. And I, I just want to draw two, two little conclusions from this period of her life where she's receiving this calling uh, to join a religious order. Uh, the first is that it's very, very easy. I would say it's almost a constant temptation for us in the Christian life. If we have a desire to become a saint as God wants us to become, to become as holy as we possibly can, which we should all have that desire. <laughs> that is our fundamental vocation, the thing that will fulfill us the most. So presuming that's in place, it's very, very tempting to look at the lives of the saints and think, ah, like, they're way up there, on this pedestal, I'm way down here. There's not enough time in, in my life. I'm, I'm never going to reach that sort of holiness. And any time you have that thought process, you want to be able to immediately identify it and name it as a terrible, awful lie that comes straight from the devil. Because that's exactly what that is. You look at the life of St. Faustina. When she's 18, 19, 20 years old, she's telling Jesus, No. No, Jesus. I don't want to do your will. I don't want to follow your plan. And then look at where she was 13 years later at age 33, one of the greatest saints of the 20th century, because she started this snowball of saying yes to the Lord in little things and big things, day by day by day by day. Right? We need to make sure that we don't, we don't give in to that lie that we can never make it there. First of all, we have to want it. That's step one. You feel like you don't actually want to become a saint, that's the first point <laughs> to examine in your conscience. But if you do, don't fall for that lie that there's too big of a gap between where you are currently and where the Lord wants you to be. And St. Faustina's, you know, this example can be an encouragement there. Certainly she's not the greatest sinner in the history of the church. Some of you who have studied the lives of the saints know that there are many other saints that lived far more scandalous lives who eventually became canonized. But 
she did have this period where she spurned the Lord very directly and then eventually became a great saint. The second thing I want to draw from this period of her life where she received this, this call to religious life uh, is sort of a reflection on our parish and also just an appeal, especially to the young women of the parish. And that is that any of you who've been at the parish uh, longer than me, I would happily hear uh, any correction on this if I'm mistaken. But from my understanding, over the past 10 or 15 years here at Good Council, we've had probably 10 or 15 young men enter the seminary. A handful have gotten ordained. Many have discerned out at different stages of seminary. This is a very healthy culture of uh, discernment of the priesthood. Uh, and that's a wonderful blessing. That's, that's wonderful. As for women in the parish entering religious life, I'm not aware in that same time frame of a single young woman in our parish entering religious life who even discerned out at a later point. Uh, and that's a very strange discrepancy. <laughs> you know, you got 15 men on the one hand and zero women on the other hand. And, and I've thought about that a lot. And I think part of the reason simply is just lack of exposure to women religious. Uh, most young women grew up with little to no contact with religious sisters. And you can't discern something that you don't know. You can't discern in a vacuum, right? Discernment is always about something concrete, even in marriage. You don't discern marriage as an abstract reality. You discern marriage to a concrete person, right? And so I think part of the, part of the discrepancy in our parish with a lack of young women going into religious life and hearing that call is just a lack of exposure, uh, which is why I want to reiterate my first prayer request that I put in the letter, which is that you all would pray fervently uh, that we can convince uh, some religious sisters to come to our parish here, um, not only for that reason, but for a whole slew of other reasons as well. Uh, that being said, I do think also it's probably safe to say that in the past 10 or 15 years, there are some young women in our parish who have maybe missed the call uh, to religious life. Um, who perhaps have not been listening maybe quite as intently as they should have uh, to the Lord in their hearts. Um, because the Lord, you know, it doesn't make logistical sense based on how he works that he would call 15 guys and zero women, <laughs> right? The, those sort of vocations kind of grow in tandem uh, in the church. That's how the Lord plants those seeds. Uh, so I just offer that for the young women in the parish, especially those of you in middle school, high school, maybe shortly after, um, I would really encourage you to open your heart to the Lord, to the possibility of this beautiful vocation. You know, I've experienced very few moments in my life as moving, as watching a woman uh, take Jesus Christ as her bridegroom, as her husband, uh, and she is the bride. Right, when I've been to ceremonies of perpetual religious vows, uh, it's some of the most moving experiences that I've ever had. I, I cry every time. <laughs> every time uh, I see a young woman give her life completely to Jesus as his bride. Uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things this side of heaven. Um, and so if, if you're a young woman in that, that age bracket, I would really, really, really beg you to uh, ask the Lord with an open heart and mind, not to have already made up your mind, 
<laughs> on what you want to do, but to really ask Him, uh, because His plan, His plan is the best. And then we look at what I call St. Faustina's personal mission within religious life. Her personal mission. So we can say that her broader mission within religious life was to receive from God this message of divine mercy and spread it throughout the world. So to have the image of divine mercy painted, to spread the chaplet, the novena, devotion to the hour of mercy, etc., etc. And she did that. So much so that at the end of her life, there wasn't a whole lot of awareness yet of this new message of divine mercy or the image. But now you go to pretty much any Catholic part of the world and you are bound to run into divine mercy in some way, shape, or form. I was talking to uh, Father Carlito, who's a Filipino priest and subs here every once in a while, a couple years ago. And he said, oh yeah, like if you go to the Philippines and you're shopping in a grocery store, there's a good chance that when three o'clock rolls around, the hour of mercy, that the loudspeaker in the church, in the grocery store, will start playing the Divine Mercy Chaplet. <laughs> Just while you're, while you're pushing your shopping cart around, right? So, uh, the message of Divine Mercy has, has made it all around the Catholic world. Um, so, St. Faustina was faithful to that very unique mission. But within that, we can say she had kind of her, yeah, I'll call it a personal mission. Uh, and this is how she described it. Oh my God, I'm conscious of my mission in the Holy Church. It is my constant endeavor to plead for mercy for the world. I unite myself closely with Jesus and stand before him as an atoning sacrifice on behalf of the world. Right, so she saw it as her mission to intercede in everything that she did, not just in prayer, but with her whole life, to intercede for mercy. And I would say in a special way, she felt called to intercede for people who are living a life of unrepentant sin and whose salvation was therefore at risk. So she felt this unique call to intercede that the Lord would have mercy on them so that they might experience conversion of hearts. Right? We see this over and over and over again in her diary. So I'll give you four things that St. Faustina would offer up to intercede for this mercy for other people. And these are things that we should take to heart ourselves. The first is physical suffering. For much of her religious life, she was enduring all sorts of sicknesses or illnesses or health problems. In her brief 12 or 13 years as a religious sister, she was in and out of hospitals and clinics and you know, often bedridden. Sometimes her physical pain was on the natural level, you might say, and sometimes it was supernatural. What I mean by that is every once in a while, St. Faustina would receive for an hour or two hours or three hours, she would experience pain in her body in the places where Jesus had his wounds during his passion. So she would experience the pain of nails in her hands, crown on her head, the wound in the side, nails through the feet. So this is what we call the invisible stigmata. Some saints were given the visible stigmata, like Padre Pio, where you could actually see the wounds of Jesus on their body. Padre Pio had to wear gloves when he celebrated Mass, right, because of, of the wounds in his hands. Uh, other saints have received the invisible stigmata, where it's not 
you know, it's, it's not uh, accessible to eyesight, but they still feel the pain of the wounds of Jesus. And St. Faustina's wasn't consistent, but it would be intermittent, be kind of scattered uh, at different times. And she would offer that for souls. I'll give you just one example in her own words of one of these instances where she offered up a moment of physical pain. This episode occurred in 1937, about a year and a half before she died. She's 32 years old. Last night I was in such pain that I thought it was the end. The doctors could not diagnose what the sickness was. I felt as if my entrails had been torn to shreds. But after a few hours of such sufferings, I am all right. All this is for sinners. Let your mercy descend upon them, O Lord. The second thing she would offer to the Lord to intercede uh, for mercy for others was her work. So in her time in the convent, she had very humble jobs, worked in the kitchen, was a gatekeeper, gardener, nothing really flashy or significant, but she offered every, every little bit of her work that she could to the Lord to intercede for mercy for other people. I'll read to you a, an exchange that she had with Jesus where she was basically bargaining with him over how many souls could have grace won for them if she offered you know, this particular task with love in union with Jesus. So here's what she says. This morning after completing my spiritual exercises, I began at once to crochet. I sensed the stillness in my heart. I sensed that Jesus was resting in it. That deep and sweet consciousness of God's presence prompted me to say to the Lord, O most holy trinity dwelling in my heart, I beg you, grant the grace of conversion to as many souls as the number of stitches that I will make today with this crochet hook. That's quite a, that's quite a bargain. Then I heard these words in my soul. My daughter, too great are your demands. And then she responds to the Lord and says, Jesus, you know that for you, it is easier to grant much rather than a little. And then he responds to her again, that is so. It is less difficult for me to grant a soul much rather than a little. But every conversion of a sinful soul demands sacrifice. And then she responds again to the Lord, Well, Jesus, I offer you this wholehearted work of mine. This offering does not seem to me to be too small for such a large number of souls. You know, Jesus, that for 30 years you were saving souls by just this kind of work. She kind of throws it, <laughs> throws it back on him. And since holy obedience forbids me to perform great penances and mortifications, uh, since she was sick at this time, her superior forbade her from practicing some greater penances that she would have liked to do, such as longer fasts and things. She says to the Lord, Since holy obedience forbids me to perform great penances and mortifications, therefore I ask you, Lord, accept these mere nothings stamped with the seal of obedience as great things. Then I heard a voice in my soul, My dear daughter, I comply with your requests. It's a good reminder for us to offer even the smallest tasks to the Lord. In the third place, she interceded for mercy for others 
uh, by prayer. This is sort of the most obvious, the one that needs the least explanation. But I will mention that towards the end of her life, because her desire and her consistency and her fervor in praying for mercy for other people was so great, she was granted another extraordinary phenomena, which we call bilocation. So on a handful of occasions, the Lord basically spiritually transported her to another place, specifically so that she could pray for somebody who was either on the cusp of committing a mortal sin. There was an example of this where she was kind of transported into a place where there was a priest who was on the cusp of committing a mortal sin, and the Lord had her pray for him and intercede for him, and he was able to resist the temptation. And he would also transport her to places where somebody was dying and who was outside of God's grace, whose salvation was in peril, and he would have her pray the chaplet for their soul. So I'll give you just one example of this. This happened only a few months before she died. Today the Lord came to me and said, My daughter, help me to save souls. You will go to a dying sinner and you will continue to recite the chaplet in this way you will obtain for him trust in my mercy, for he is already in despair. Suddenly I found myself in a strange cottage where an elderly man was dying amidst great torments. All about the bed was a multitude of demons and the family who were crying. When I began to pray, the spirits of darkness fled with hissing and threats directed at me. The soul became calm and filled with trust, rested in the Lord. At the same moment, I found myself again in my own room. How this happens, I do not know. Right. The, the fourth and final way that Faustina would intercede for mercy for other people is offering her spiritual suffering for others, spiritual pain. So I've had the chance as a priest to meet a handful of people who in their life have experienced both tremendous physical pain of some kind and tremendous spiritual pain and to a man every single one of them will say father having experienced both of those i would gladly take the physical pain any day of my life over the spiritual pain that i've experienced and spiritual pain can be much more acute uh, can be can tempt us much more to to despair so St. Faustina had both. Um, she experienced many moments of spiritual darkness, what we call the dark night of the senses or the dark night of the soul. And yet she offered those for sinners. So just one more example of that in her own words. Today I feel such desolation in my soul that I do not know how to explain it even to myself. I would like to hide from people and cry endlessly. No one understands a heart wounded by love. And when such a heart feels itself abandoned interiorly, no one can comfort it. O souls of sinners, you have taken the Lord away from me, but all right, all right. You get to know how sweet the Lord is, while the whole sea of bitterness floods my heart. I have given all my divine comforts to you. What is she saying there? She's saying the Lord has given her, at certain moments in her life, insane levels of communion with Him that are so sweet it's impossible to put into words. And she's saying that she has willingly offered these, offered to give them up 
and say, Lord, give some of these consolations to someone who is far from you. Some sinner who's in a place there, they're not repentant. Give these consolations to them so that they'll have a conversion. And allow me instead to feel you know, the emptiness, to feel a lack of your presence. Like, I want to offer this sacrifice, Lord, for, for the sake of, of a sinner. It's real heroism. Real heroism, friends. To offer something like that to God. How many of you would take the greatest suffering you've ever experienced in life, multiply it by a hundred, and then say, Lord, I'm willing to continue ex experiencing this suffering as long as you want me to, if you just save someone's soul. If you just give them the grace of conversion. I, I don't think I'd be willing to do that. Like this stuff of this hidden nun that nobody knew about, this is, this is heroism, pure and simple. And it's a great, it's a great model for us. Finally, I just want to share with all of you a, sim a simple little vignette from the very end of her life. This is a week or two before she died. And one of her religious sisters came to her and noticed how serene she was, how she didn't seem to be scared or fearful of death at all. And the sister came and said, Sister, aren't you afraid of death? Very direct question. And St. Faustina responded and said, Why? All my sins and imperfections will be consumed like straw in the fire of divine mercy. So the lesson for us there is trust in the Lord's mercy. And as I feel like I repeat ad nauseum, <laughs> the first way we trust in the Lord's mercy is we take advantage of the primary instrument he established to give mercy, which is the sacrament of confession. Right? So Faustina first trusted in the Lord's mercy by being faithful to that sacrament. She made her last confession at 4 p.m. on October 5th, 1938, and she died six hours later. So she was she was faithful to trust in the Lord's mercy through that great sacrament all the way to the end. So that would be my primary prayer, I think, for myself and for all of you on our feast day, is that all of us would trust uh, in the Lord's mercy all the way uh, to the very end of our life.